You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. BPH, or benign prostatic hypertrophy, is a relatively common phenomenon in men, and treatment options are varied. In our last session, we have discussed medications and the traditional approach of transurethral section of the prostate. We will now discuss further treatments and newer approaches to this disease. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. Peter Mensch, founder of Delaware Urologic Associates, which specializes in treating urologic problems with the least invasive, state-of-the-art procedures. Welcome, Dr. Mensch. Hi. Today we are discussing benign prostatic hypertrophy and treatment options. In our last segment, we discussed the use of cystoscopy. Is this a common approach that you do, Dr. Mensch? Yes. And what do you learn by cystoscopy? The length of the prostate can be determined by doing cystoscopy, but also I do cystoscopy by having the patient void first. So one of the other things is as soon as I get into the bladder, I look at how much residual there is and can pretty much estimate from experience whether it's a lot or not. The other thing that I look for is something called trabeculation and sacculation. And so basically, when the bladder is blocked, the muscle bundles in the bladder form units to try to overcome the obstruction. So you'll see that the muscles will separate a little bit, and some on this side of the bladder will all band together, and then right next to them there'll be a separation, and then there'll be another wide swath of muscle bundles. And so you see this almost, if you were a weightlifter, you would call it ripped, a ripped appearance to the bladder. Every muscle is acutely defined. What happens is that the bladder is called upon to generate higher and higher pressures to get this urine out through that prostate. And in so doing, in generating those higher pressures, the mucosa, the lining of the bladder, squishes out between the muscle bundles. So you have this real prominent picture of almost tendon-like architecture within the bladder and outpouchings between them. The tendons or muscle bundles are trabeculation. The outpouchings are sacculation, and that's not normal. A bladder is supposed to be just a smooth sheet when it's full. A baby's bladder would just be a smooth sheet, and the more obstructed it is, the more trabeculation and sacculation. And that just means that the bladder's losing the war, and it, it hasn't yet surrendered, but it's definitely headed that way. Trabeculation and sacculation would be like... You went to the beach and you picked up a handful of wet sand and squeezed it in your fist and the sand eked out between the fingers. And that's basically what happens. The pressure in the bladder is so high that the inner lining, the mucosa, squishes out between the muscle bundles. And that appearance is pathognomonic for obstruction. So clearly by doing a cystoscopy, you can really determine which patients most probably will need more than medications. Right. And especially when you go back to, well, some people grow prostates at different rates. And also 
some people have different strengths bladders. Now, we know that you are a specialist in the green light laser vaporization. Can you just tell us what is the green light laser vaporization process? Green light laser, all laser, is generation of one specific wavelength of light. And this is actually green light. Technically, at 532 nanometer is the wavelength. The interesting thing is that green, I don't know if you know your, your primary colors, green is absorbed by red, okay? So it's actually the vasculature of healthy prostate tissue that makes it just suck up this laser energy and it vaporizes it. It raises the temperature of the water in the cells so that they lyse. Now, what does that do, having lysed cells? Well, TERP, where we're talking about using electricity, you're using electricity to, to cut a furrow of tissue out of the prostate. You're basically going up into the hole of this donut, the prostate shaped like a donut, and you're trying to enlarge the donut hole by taking a swath of tissue out at a time. The laser vaporizes that tissue so that you got the swath, but there's no bleeding and there's no tissue. So the tissue is immediately gone. So the results of the laser are immediate. The other thing about the laser is that vaporized tissue doesn't get a chance to bleed. So you just have the most beautiful clear field throughout the procedure. Whereas in the old days when you would trim with electricity, each swath that you cut lead, and after a couple swaths, you're going to lose your field, and you've got to stop and apply a lot of energy, electricity, to cauterize, and the cautery has side effects. So the laser completely avoids all of that. Is this done cystoscopically? Yes, but with a rigid cystoscope. So therefore, it is not done under local anesthesia? No. You also want to be precise. So you wouldn't have the patient moving or... I like general anesthesia for this just so that you can have a stationary target and do a real finesse job. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and we are speaking with Dr. Peter Mensch, founder of Delaware Urologic Associates, which specializes in treating urologic problems with the least invasive, state of the art procedures. We were just speaking about the green light laser vaporization process, and this certainly seems like a new technique that has great promise. How long is this? been in existence? I think it was first put in practice over five years ago so that the data that they've compiled about the safety and the efficacy is durable. Now, it sounds so good to be true. Is it really that good? I'm really a proponent of it. The history of all of this is very interesting, how you see that at first there was surgery, open surgery. Well, who would want to have open surgery? to remove their prostate. Nobody. So you're talking like the 40s. And in the 50s, then, it was TERP. And the first TERPs were probably pretty horrible themselves, you know. The worst thing to do is to try to do a TERP on a very large prostate because you're not going to get much accomplished and you're going to have to go back several times. 
in order to achieve your result. And I think it was because of that that the drug companies looked at how many people needed a TERP and wouldn't get one that they actually started offering alpha blockers, Proscar, Evidart, all of those kind of therapies. You'll see that each step along the line wasn't necessarily an improvement. It was just better than the thing that came before it. So TERP had its own set of problems, alpha blockers and prostate volume reducers like Avidart and Prescar have limited efficacy. And then you'll see in the early 90s, again, we're talking about the history of the evolution of this thing, that people were really, really trying to come up with some alternative to this, quote, gold standard of the TERP. And you see that people did microwaves and needle ablations and tunas, and every year it seemed that there was the next big thing coming out. And you see that they all kind of quietly disappeared. They had prostate stents, almost like cardiac stents, and those didn't work because they got encrusted with the minerals. So you could see that, boy, there was this trial and error period in the 90s where every year or two years something new came up and it was great for a couple months and then reality set in and it was horrible. They used to balloon dilate prostates. And basically you were putting a balloon up in the prostate and blowing it up and splitting it and then it would heal the scar tissue and those people ended up being worse rather than, rather than better. So when the green light laser came along, it was after a lot of medicine shows where people were saying, buy this, this will fix you. And I was pretty jaded. I was like, sure, right. I've heard this about 10 times in the last decade, so I don't think so. And I, I actually started to listen to what they were saying, and it made sense to me. And I went to a demonstration in um, Philadelphia, and I saw it, and I thought, oh, no, this, this is real. This, the potential for this is unlimited. So it just made sense to me. And then when you saw that they were using light, and if you're in one room and I'm in the room next to it, and you're shining a flashlight at me, I can't see it. It doesn't penetrate the tissues. And so with the laser, I mean, the, the laser doesn't affect the nerves for the erections that run outside the prostate. The nerves outside the prostate don't even know that the laser is being done in the prostate, whereas if you trim that prostate with electricity, that electric current is arcing everywhere. It's, the nerves are probably acting like a lightning rod. So it explains a lot of things. When did the green light laser become FDA approved? I think that was five years ago. So our hospital got it three years ago. What percent of urologists are now using the green light laser? At our hospital, we actually got one green light laser. It was so successful, we got another. Our hospital is 1,000 beds. And then there's a 300-bed hospital in the community as well. So we now have a green light laser at all of them. So we bought three. At one time, there was only one laser. So when the first one came and everybody was using it, you could actually say who had the most experience. And I think at the time they had done 300 cases, I had done 150 of those cases, and the next nearest caseload was 75, and that's amongst 13 urologists. 
And you'll see that some of the older urologists will be so comfortable with trimming with electricity that they'll be good at it and they'll do it. It doesn't mean that it's in the patient's best interest. It just means that they're uncomfortable in learning something new. Is there a specialized uh, credentialing for this procedure? You have to go to a workshop and then you have to do two procedures observed by a laser scope. That is the company that makes the laser by a laser scope trainer. And then you have to, at our hospital, I had to do like five or ten more under direct supervision. Finally, do you think that this is going to become the gold standard for endourologic treatment of benign prostatic hypertrophy? I think that it already is. I honestly think that it already is. I want to thank Dr. Peter Mensch, who has been our guest. We have been discussing benign prostatic hypertrophy and different treatment options for it. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan Hill. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.